Hi everyone, I'm Sofia, the founder of Vona and a host of this podcast, Vona Talks. Vona is a consultancy and education platform with a focus on climate, gender, security and intersection between them. In this podcast, we bring unique and underrepresented as well as more known voices of diverse experts, activists and storytellers. Hi everyone, welcome back to Wanna Talks and today with me I have a guest. Um, her name is Katie Wies and she is the policy manager for economic transition and gender equality at the European Environmental Bureau. Hi Katie. Hello, Sofia. <laughs> Can you briefly introduce yourself beyond your title that I just named? Yes, of course. So first of all, um, thanks a lot for having me today. I was I was really excited. Uh, yes, as you said, my name is Kati uh, Wiese. I'm German. Uh, I work for the European Environmental Bureau, which uh, maybe I can also say one sentence on that. It's a large network of environmental organizations based in Brussels. So we have different member uh, organizations all over Europe and we work on a broad range of different environmental topics. And um, I'm with EB since um, five years um, already. And uh, yeah, I would consider myself as an ecofeminist and we can talk about this uh, later. Um, yeah, I, I like doing sports <laughs> and, and baking vegan things. Maybe also a little personal side note. Nice. I love the baking <laughs> vegan things and hopefully also without not much sugar. So then it's I perfectly try. healthy. <laughs> and <laughs> um, before we dive into content of your work, I also want to hear your story. So you already said you come from Germany, but can we get to know a bit more about you? What brought you to work on climate and gender intersection and becoming eco-feminist? And also baking vegan cakes. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. I think how it all starts was um, my bachelor uh, studies. I mean, I did a, bet, a dual study. So I think it's quite a German thing, but it's basically a system where you study three months and you work three months. So you have a contract with a company and you just change um, in a on a regular basis. And this was um, in um, business and economics. So uh, yeah maybe a bit different from, from what I'm doing now. Um, but I uh, worked and I worked for an advertisement agency. Uh, and what I really, I didn't really like the content of the work, but I, what, I, what I liked was to think about strategy and, and to think, okay, how can you, what does it need to explain a product and get it on the market? And on the, um, I mean, because we talk about ecofeminism or, or also climate change and feminism, um, what What was interesting there was that uh, my boss, she founded a company uh, alone with a friend um, as a female entrepreneur and, and it grew up to 30 people and she really teached us a lot about how you can accommodate um, or how you can make a workplace more gender equal and also more fitting for different needs, for example, for kids. So this was a bit, I think, what also yeah, kind of politicized me maybe in the end. Um, but then as I realized, okay, 
it's not necessarily what I want to do. And, and uh, yeah, I had a bit of a gap and I ended up to work uh, for the German Development Corporation in Ghana on a renewable energy project, which then, I, I mean, I saw the immediately um, impacts of our environmental footprint in, in countries in Africa, because I don't know if you know, but there's this big electro um, dumping site where also children are working and it's very bad for the, for the health. So um, that's when I then decided to do a master in Sweden uh, in environmental sustainability science, uh, where one of my courses was on um, gender equality and environmental issues. So I think this was also my first, um, I would say, academic exposure to the different impacts environmental damages or and climate change can actually have. And this then also led me to... Uh, with my master thesis uh, in Ethiopia, where I again ended up with the German Development Corporation, but where I looked into the benefits of, of electricity, electricity through community-based hydropower projects in four sites in rural areas uh, in Ethiopia, and um, who does really benefit from it. So it was also this environmental and gender justice um, lens, because in the, I would also say, development cooperation world, you, you kind of uh, automatically assume that if you give electricity to a village or if you connect a village, that the benefits of electricity would be equally shared among men and women. Uh, but what I found was basically because of structural inequalities or different gender roles that uh, women um, yeah, had to, for example, work longer or um, in the evenings or was cooking longer because now they had light in the evening and the same was for uh, for girls um, that they often had to help their parents or their, their moms in that case whereas the boys had then maybe more time to study so I found it also yeah really interesting to see okay actually it's not that black and white and and because of structural inequalities um, you have to do more to ensure that it really benefits both um uh, yeah, equally. Um, and this then, because I, I kind of got along quite well with my supervisor, so what we did before I, I got a job was then also um, doing a, a literature view in, in Europe to see, okay, when it comes to the energy transition uh, here, like what are actually the impacts? Um, because in Europe it's, it's I mean, okay, maybe one, one step back is that what I see is in the, in the development cooperation world, it's kind of acknowledged that their projects need to have a gender equal benefit or there's a gender lens. But then in Europe, it was really, I mean, there was, yeah, there's, I think this idea that whatever environmental policies or energy policies we have, it, it does benefit men and women equally. So what we did was a literature review to also see, okay, uh, is there any research uh, about this? And there, are, back in the days, there were very few papers, but also already showcasing. Okay, because also of gender, because of gender roles, or uh, um, that women still have to um, take the bulk of the care work. Um, it also doesn't necessarily mean that it benefits uh, women and men equally. Um, yeah, and then. Um, I I was thinking um, being in uh, in Ethiopia again uh, and seeing some of the issues there. I, I was also thinking, okay, if I think about Europe and the energy transition or the renewable energy transition, I mean, there's also so much potential. And I had this a bit idealistic idea, okay, in Brussels, I mean, where European politics are happening, I mean, that's I think where I would like to go and 
yeah, that I would like to shape. So I applied for jobs there and that's how I ended up in the, in the EB basically right shortly after I've been in Ethiopia. Cool. I love that you have a development and a more a global south kind of experience before you ended up being in Brussels and in policymaking, because I feel like it's not a usual path and a lot of people come to Brussels to start their jobs and then they ideally would go somewhere on the field to experience the, um, the things and the policies and their implementation on the ground. So I feel like it's it's an interesting and a different way that you kind of a path that you took in your career and in your professional development. But it's probably, as you said, also the one that brought you to the topic of climate change and gender once you saw that it's not working or it's working not the way you would want it to work and that you wanted to be part of the changes. So talking a bit about the European Environmental Bureau, um, could you share a bit more what the organization does? What do you do? And for me, it was also very surprising when I saw your title and manager for economic transition and gender equality, because we do not usually have people who work on both. At the same time, you usually have a person working on gender equality and then someone who works on economic policy. So maybe you could bring those two and share a bit what your day-to-day job looks like. Yes, um, sure. <laughs> So the, I mean, as I said before, the EEP is a network of envi- environmental organizations. So we have around 190 members in all EU countries, also some neighboring countries. For example, we do have also members in Ukraine. And um, the EEP uh, celebrates next year its uh, 50th anniversary. So we're quite an old organization. So and and I would say uh, traditionally was more focused on harder environmental topics. Um, yeah, such as um, energy, um, biodiversity, agriculture. Um, and you can also see if you visit our website, we do work on a broad range of different topics. So, so addition to this, also circular economy, health, um, yeah, agriculture already mentioned, uh, climate, uh, water, uh, etc., or chemicals as well as, as another topic. And um, since six years, we also have the economic transition team. So it's quite a a new team. And the idea behind this team was that, okay, um, the unsustainable consumption production of our economic system right now is also a large driver of climate change. So if we effectively want to tackle climate change, we also do need to change the economic system. And we do this um, by trying to integrate alternative economic ideas from the donut economic uh, donut economy maybe people know the Kate Roth donut economy uh, or post growth ideas or degrowth ideas into EU policy making um, that's um, what my team uh, does and um, the the second part uh, on gender equality this um, came a bit later and I mean Sometimes it also just depends on, on certain people in the organization. And I mean, to be very honest, how it started was that me and another colleague and my boss, uh, we found um, eco-feminist ideas or the, the different impacts on climate change and environmental policies on men, women or other vulnerable groups um, quite interesting and, and felt also a bit the need that the EB would also investigate this more. Um, so we had a, f- a few talks, we had a thematic lunch to also yeah, talk with other staff members and to show them, okay, what does it actually mean and how does it impact your work as well? And from that, we um, started a pilot project where in the first step, 
uh, we um, talked to other environmental organizations. Are you working on the gender environment nexus? What are your topics? What are the, um, the gaps? Then we also had talks with um, women rights organizations because of it was also interesting to see, okay, do you work on, on climate issues or is this one of, of your topic areas? And, and this um, then kind of culminated um, in, so in, in two dimensions. So one is the internal dimensions that we um, have my position now basically um, to have a person who has a bit of look uh, or checks or cross-checks also with the, the work of other team members. Okay, uh, could you um, apply an ecofeminist lens, for example, or a gender lens? Uh, and at the same time, we also um, had some discussions about around um, more, uh, more gender equal work, uh, workplace or employment uh, policies, um, etc. Then my boss and me were also attending some feminist leadership programs. So that's also, also trying to bring in into the organization. So what does it even mean, uh, a feminist leadership? And then on the external side, um, we, we did two uh, publications where we analyze different uh, European Green Deal policies and how far they have implemented um, yeah, ecofeminist pers perspective or gender lens. Uh, and that's, I would say, the two dimensions um, we, we work on. And that's also why I uh, work on economic transition policies and gender equality, because also in the end, when we talk about economic policies, um, If we don't apply uh, a gender lens, we might exacerbate existing inequalities. And I think that's yeah also really key when we talk about environmental policies at the moment to really have a strong social aspect to it. Very interesting. And uh, thank you for sharing as well the publications that you mentioned. We can also share them below in the description because I think, and I read one of them, I think, at least, and found it very, very interesting. And actually the one I'm talking about was on ecofeminism and how it can be applied in today's world and in today's nowadays policies. Um, actually, the other day I was just uh, working on uh, delivering a training on gender mainstreaming and climate policies, and I did touch upon the ecofeminism, but before starting to explain what it is, I asked the participants if they heard the, about the concept before. And because the concept is relatively old, I think it comes from 70s, um, there are a bit, I think, mismatches with what is happening today. And it a lot touches upon women's connection with nature and a bit of um, spiritual, I think, explanation. So maybe you could share with us what is the concept today and how do you understand it and how do you apply it in your daily work and maybe yeah, bring to it a bit uh, modernization <laughs> to the current policies. Yes, uh, for sure. So ecofeminism, um, for me... Um, I mean, has basically emerged from both an, a, a political activism, but also an intellectual critique that sees basically um, climate change, gender equality, and social justice more broadly um, as uh, related issues. And, and these issues are all linked to masculine dominance in our society. So it basically um, says that or holds the belief that most environmental issues can be traced back to the global prioritization of qualities that we might deem more masculine. So, um, and, and I think particularly the ones uh, we would regard as uh, toxic, like aggression or domination. And uh, at the same time, it also um, basically calls attention to the fact that 
and we talked about this before, that women are disproportionately uh, affected by environmental issues. What I, yeah, maybe also a bit from a historical perspective, so the, the term was first uh, coined by a French woman um, called um, Françoise de Bonne in one of her books in the 70s. So as you said, it, it kind of emerged alongside the second wave feminism and the green movement. And it became quite popular in the context of uh, numerous protests that happened back then against environmental catastrophes such as Chernobyl. Uh, but there was also a big uh, nuclear accident in uh, in the United States, a uh, three-island uh, accident. And I can actually uh, really recommend the documentation that um, uh, that I saw very recently because it really shows how women, who are also many of them were, were basically housewives, really mobilized against the company and the regulatory authorities and, and the government, yeah, to to fight for their for their rights. And um, and um, at the same time, I think that's really important also to highlight that it's not just a, a global north concept. So there are so many women in the global south uh, who, yeah, who have been ecofeminist uh, essentially already long before. Uh, and just to mention a few, I probably a lot of people from our listeners know Vandana Shiva, who's a a woman rights activist and, and who did a lot on the um, nexus of agriculture and, and women empowerment. And another one is also Vangari Mantai, who, who founded the Green Belt Movement, um, for which she also received the Nobel Peace Prize and, and which is a movement uh, focused on planting of trees, environmental conservation and women's rights. But uh, yeah, I think it's just very important to also acknowledge this and that not just to focus on the Western perspective. And um, by the end of the 90s, 1990s, um, ecofeminism had become a bit under fire uh, from critics who dismissed the framework as being too essentialist. So basically that means that um, placing women closer or, either, uh, or even romanticize, romanticizing them um, as being closer to nature, uh, as well as a quite dualistic and binary understanding as just uh, man and woman. Um, but since then, um, I think since at the end of the 90s, I think already, there were many um, writers, thinkers, activists who really um, shared their different understandings or perspective uh, on, on ecofeminism. Um, as you said, I, I, there's not really one movement, basically, but uh, there are different um, positions that have emerged um, to just give a few examples. There's vegetarian ecofeminism. So this is basic concept indicating that the oppression of animals in the form of being slaughtered and consumed is parallel to the oppression of women in a patriarchal society. You mentioned spiritual activism is also one branch um, which combines the will for personal development uh, and the well-being of uh, women. There's materials ecofeminism, uh, which tries to connect this to institutions such as labor, power, property, um, as also being one of the root causes of the domination of uh, women and nature. And uh, very recently, also queer um, ecofeminism, so that also aims for the liberation of um, oppressed groups. So why there are many different um, forms? I mean, the, at, at the root cause, they're all, yeah, 
assert that the masculine dominance has led to, the, to a disconnect between nature and culture, which then also has negatively impacted uh, marginalized groups. And I think now I forgot your second question, but it was basically how, what does it mean still today? Yeah. And maybe how you can apply it in today's policies, because again, we often have this amazing, beautiful terms that are, exist out there, but how can we actually start applying them? Yes. Um, I think one concrete example is, so when you think about um, that it ties to rather toxic masculine behavior attributes, uh, that studies show that um, women tend to adopt more sustainable behaviors. And we see this with transport, for example. We see that also with the use of car or sports cars or, or meat. And I think one of the reasons is that these kind of more masculine attributes or behavior like driving fast cars um, are still dominant in our societies whereas um, yeah uh, other sustainable behavior or like choosing public transport over a car for example is potentially seen as more soft or feminine and that's why maybe not uh, or rejected uh, by by certain parts of the society what it then means um, in policies is that when we think Uh, or we, we look at transport, which, which is a good example. If studies show that women tend to opt for more public transport, um, they also um, tend to uh, travel uh, more often during the day, like shorter trips to do house chores or to pick up kids, etc. Whereas men tend to commute, commute more from and to work. Um, if we have this in mind and then look at the policies that are happening, at least on the EU level, which is rather focused, I say, I would say, on electrifying the infrastructure that we have now. That means that, yeah, actually, we, we really forget like, um, a large part of the organization, uh, of, the, of the population. So what we would need to have a more, have more gender equal or intersectional transfer policies is actually, yeah, how can we have better um, and safe access to public uh, transport? How Because I think also everyone knows that um, just thinking like at the moment I, I live in Berlin and a, a few, a lot of the metro lines don't really have an elevator or something. I was wondering, okay, how does, how does someone with a prim or even people with disabilities, how should they actually use um, transport lines? Um, and um, yeah, that's why I'm also always get a bit uh, angry when I hear like all the discussions about, uh, yeah, or, or too much focus on, on the electrification of cars, whereas of course this is one aspect that we need, but then we also really need less cars and, and better public transport. Uh, and what, is, what I also found quite interesting is that safety is a much bigger issue in, in choosing trans tra uh, public transport or not. So very, um, I mean, it's also not really difficult in policies to implement, but one could also um, have yeah, certain maybe wagons just for women or have more staff in the, um, in the metro lines, on the trains. I mean, these are all easy um, policies or easy activities or actions that we could implement. Uh, or I think another issue I read in one study is that there's not enough light out of the station. So that's why some people don't feel comfortable to use public transport. Um, yeah, so just to say some of those ideas are also not rocket science, I mean, <laughs> but um, if you don't, um, if you consider the masculine model as the neutral model to base policy on, then you might not think about these things. 
Thank you. Thank you for sharing. And I feel like an example with transport is also something that is very relevant to a lot of us because most of us do use public transport, even if not on a daily basis, then at least from time to time, um, depending on which city and where do you live. Um, I actually, as you were saying about like separate vacants or separate carriages for women, um, I remember that once I traveled to the Middle Eastern country and they do have those type of policies, of course, for for different reasons, but one of the reasons is also safety, to be sure that women who want to to ride only with women to feel a bit safer or, yeah, that it, it could be an option. Um, so such practices already are not new for this world. So I think it's just a matter of actually looking at the statistics and looking at the realities and then applying them into policies. And do you have more examples when it comes to economic transition, maybe in relation like how ecofeminism probably stands within the policies of economic transition, the donut economics, post-growth, degrowth? Is it counter, um, yeah, counterproductive to each other or are they actually sort of talking about the same thing, but maybe from different angles? Um, I mean, one of the examples I always like to mention is, the, um, is working time reductions. So, I mean, working time reductions are quite um, a popular proposal in the, when it comes to an economic transition for several reasons. So one is um, in order to adopt more sustainable behaviors that often take time, we also do need time. Uh, time. So if we reduce our work, um, we would have more time to cook at home or to do something for our communities or... Yeah, or even also engage in democratic um, discussions or in the, in the process as such. So, because if you also if you want to vote and if you really want to know, or if you want to get a good understanding who to vote, you also actually need time to 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 do that. Um, and then another reason is if we think that okay, now we are overconsume and overproduce, so that would probably mean um, that in in a new economic system, some of the more unsustainable industries or business activities we would need to degrow, whereas other um, activities or things that are vital or good for the well-being of our society and nature, and, and here I'm also thinking about care, we need to grow. But um, yeah, considering that there's a lot of things we uh, produce that we probably don't need, so how do we then actually manage if we uh, reduce our production um, to not get into, yeah, to not lay off uh, half the employees. And yeah, this would then, of course, also um, kind of start a spiral of recession and even more, more unemployment, et cetera. I mean, that's all what we don't want. So what we then need is, okay, how do we basically decouple uh, work from economic growth? And that's why also working time reduction could be um, a solution to redistribute work a bit more evenly in our societies because I think what we also do see is that uh, some people work way too much um, others not enough and and others have maybe two or three jobs and they still can, cannot make uh, ends um, meets end okay it was was a long um, <laughs> um, uh, background story to that but in the economic transition or donut or degrowth world the working time the four-day working week is basically a very popular proposal such as the Friday off. But then what um, ecofeminists have shown that um, actually from a an, from an feminist perspective, it might not be the most desirable policy because if you consider that women at the moment still have the, re yeah, the high responsibility for care work 
um, it doesn't necessarily help them in sharing their uh, care work more equally. So in their opinion, better solution would be to potentially reduce the hours per day and just having one day off where, yeah, the rest of the days maybe the, the, the one party or the one person in the, in the couples or family or whatever concept you might have still responsible for the book of the uh, care work. And that I found quite interesting um, because it also shows even in new concept or new ideas, uh, yeah, if we don't pay attention, we might exacerbate uh, existing inequalities. Um, so, yeah, it's also a growing, um, a growing field or there are some more researchers who actually engage in, in those questions as well. Indeed, very interesting. I didn't know about the fact and uh, I, I am myself a big promoter of the four working days week, but I'm the one who is for now privileged not to have or not privileged not to have children and additional care work in my daily life. But indeed, as you're saying, if we do not consider the views and sometimes those policies are decided and uh, shaped within the circles of the people who probably have been doing this before as well, without really including enough women and diversity around the table to actually hear different points of views on how would be the most effective to implement less working hours, weeks, um, whether it is having less days or many less, maybe less hours and also how to distribute this across families. And I feel like I was thinking also about the, the parental leave because I know that in Belgium, for instance, and this has been something new for me since I arrived here, was that uh, usually on Wednesdays, many women work only half days because this is also the day when the schools or kindergartens are also half day off. So many women mostly women, do take days off on, on Wednesday or half days off on Wednesday and they work limited hours because of the way how it's all organized. But I really saw men having the same type of things. So maybe how do you distribute those days and those hours across families as well and maybe also consider that it's not falls only on the shoulders of women who maybe would have less hours in the workday, but then it would probably mean more hours at home to do the care work, to do the cleaning, to take care of the elderly children and anyone else you might need to take care of. So thank you for mentioning this. I really love this kind of application of different policies into our everyday lives. Um, but unfortunately, we would have to come to an end. And um, I would have still the last question from you, to you, sorry. Uh, if there is any last messages you want to share with our listeners. We have quite a diverse audience and uh, we discussed a lot of things from ecofeminism to post-growth. Is there anything particular that you would want to stick after our conversation? Yeah, I was thinking that I would also just in, invite uh, listeners who found it interesting to read more about it or to listen to different podcasts because for me that's been always very empowering and interesting and, uh, and it's I really like this these moments when you read something and you think ah yeah this actually makes sense and this is an interconnection and then yeah, like why why is that so? Oh yeah, it's linked to because we still live in a patriarchal world. Um but it doesn't really have to mean that. So there are also a lot of books that then also focus on okay, how can we break this and how can we really yeah create a world that is uh, equal for everyone um and not just for one part of the society. So I think that's that's really my invitation because I yeah. I, I talked about the documentary before, but I, I still think about it because it was so empowering for me as well to see 
those uh, those women, um, yeah, engaging the whole community in the end to 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 fight for 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 their rights and and yeah for a better and equal more equal world. Thank you, Katie. And I, I fully agree with you. And also I would want to maybe emphasize that some of these things you can also do at the individual level, depending on which communities and where you are based. I remember that, and I'm sorry for taking the floor from you, um, but I remember that my kind of interest in climate change and climate justice, because I do not come from climate background per se, started with the book, uh, by Mary Robbins called Climate Justice, which basically is the gathering of different stories of women all around the world who talk about how did they cope with climate change at the community levels and at the global levels. And once I was reading this, I was like, okay, so actually changes could happen from a community and individual level. You just have to care and start acting. And then there could be some things that would lead towards really global solutions across the world. So, and I mean, this is only one of the examples, but there are many, many more. As you said, the documentaries you mentioned and other podcasts, and of course, this podcast as well also, I share and I try to share with you a lot of stories of people who, because of their individual choices or how the life and where the life took them, decided to do what they do and um, how do they do it on their daily basis. So thank you again for your time. And um, yeah. Stay tuned and uh, follow Katie as well on social media and other networks and read the publications that we will disclose below. Thank you, Sophia. And yeah, also feel free to uh, contact me anytime if you have any questions. That was it for this episode. Now we would love to hear from you. Let us know who should be our next guest. Maybe it's you. To get engaged, go to our website, buona.international, where you will find a box to share with us your ideas and requests regarding next episodes. Also, subscribe to our monthly newsletter and follow us on social media. Talk soon! Talk soon!